it's not as simple as if Democrats can talk better, they'll recoup all these voters. It's so much bigger than that. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. When's the book coming out? book is coming out in June of next year, but the draft and manuscripts are done. So we're getting close. Woo! It's getting real. It's getting real, folks. Also returning to the roundup, Hagar Somali. Hagar is the former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She has served as senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. Agar is also an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC. Hagar, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You made me realize I wear too many hats. (laughs) (laughs) Up first this week, Israel approved a deal for a short-term ceasefire in exchange for hostages being held captive in Gaza. We'll dive into Hamas's wide-reaching financial empire and the reach of its ideas. Then we'll break down some of the challenges facing Joe Biden heading into the 2024 election and why changes in messaging alone might not fix Democrats' problems with Latino voters. Later, we'll look at Sam Altman's ouster from OpenAI. Now he's back. The tension within the company between rapid commercialization and extreme caution over the risks AI poses to humanity. And after the main show, we'll go over to Politicology Plus and talk about the new and more unhinged Donald Trump, the stakes in the 2024 election, and the challenges to building an anti-Trump coalition this time around. We'd love you to join us for that conversation and more ad-free episodes on a private podcast feed with a Politicology Plus subscription. Head to politicology.com plus or click the link right at the top of your show notes. On Tuesday, the Israeli cabinet approved a Qatar-mediated deal. I'm just going to say Qatar. Uh, Some people say Qatar. I don't know. Jury's still out. Uh, In which Hamas will free dozens of Israeli hostages in exchange for a four-day pause in fighting in Gaza and the release of dozens of Palestinians held in prisons in Israel. We're recording on Wednesday morning. So as of right now, there's an Egyptian source saying the pause could start as early as Thursday morning. Uh, It's a two-phase deal. In the first phase, Hamas is expected to free 50 Israeli women and children being held hostage in Gaza. Uh, Israel is expected to release about 150 Palestinian prisoners, mostly women and children, over the four-day pause. Uh, And they will allow 300 aid trucks per day to enter Gaza from Egypt. And also more fuel will be allowed in during the pause and fighting. In the second phase, Hamas could release dozens more women, children, and elderly hostages in return for Israel, extending the ceasefire by up to five more days Uh, And more than 240 people, as a reminder, were abducted by Hamas on October 7th. Four have been released. One has been rescued. Two have been found dead. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, said on Tuesday that the war will continue after the pause, quote, until Hamas is destroyed, all the hostages are released, and there is nobody in Gaza who can threaten Israel. It's important to note here that an Israeli official who briefed reporters on Tuesday said they are not going to release any Palestinian prisoners who have been convicted of killing 
Israelis. Uh, Hagar, top lines, what did you make of the deal? Well, the deal overall is a is a, is good news, um, but uh, but but I would I would agree that the situation there is going to continue. So let's walk this back a little bit. Releasing hostages has to be one of the biggest priorities for a number of reasons. You have the victims and and the abhorrent situations that they're being held in. You have the families of those victims and how they must be feeling. You have the fact that it complicates any aggression, any military war strategy is going to be complicated by the fact that you have hostages. That is a point of leverage that Hamas has. And so prioritizing that, prioritizing the release is fantastic. And it is one of doing a pause, some would argue a ceasefire. Let's break that down though, because I think that the two are very different. Um, But any kind of pause or ceasefire is the leverage that the Israelis have on their end. And so they are right to keep that uh, in their pocket in exchange for hostages. So good news overall, uh, not surprising the things that they're, that are being exchanged, things like this pause that's going on uh, in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. I'm happy to hear that the prisoners being released are not uh, those who murdered Israelis because we've seen from this attack specifically that the masterminds of the October 7 terrorist attack, uh, one of the biggest ones, had been in an Israeli prison for for a very long time. One of Hamas's biggest leaders was in uh, an Israeli prison, I believe, for almost 20 years. So anyway, Good news overall, um, but uh, but I would I would believe Bibi at his word when he says that the war is not over, and and that is because this is a war that's about defeating Hamas and about deterrence to ensure that no other proxies are ever going to do a similar attack. It gives that window on one hand. If you look at the arguments to be made for both sides, the argument to the Israeli side is to the Israeli government is. You need to get hostages released. This is really important. Women and children, you've got your own civilians who are desperate for you to get them, to get them released to prioritize that. So that's good for you. And although there's this pause that will only benefit Hamas, you can still figure out and recalibrate your military strategy after that. And then on the Hamas side, the argument to them coming from the Qatari government, um, and I would also say Qatar, by the way, in English, it's just easier. Okay. Yeah, in Arabic, it's Qatar. But like, who's going to say that doesn't make any sense in English? So um, I wouldn't expect you to to use that, those those alphabet, the letter that that, that starts with Qa. It's not relevant. It's not going to work in English. So the, the Qatari argument to Hamas is, Listen, you're losing this battle, and so get release some hostages and uh, and and you know restructure yourself, move weapons, move yourselves, make sure your civilians don't hate you so much. By the way, I don't like anything that that supports Hamas. I'm just saying that this is the argument that's probably being made to them. Um, you know, uh, make it so that your civilians don't completely despise you and blame you for for this war that you invited into the country, into sorry, into the into the territory, and um, and uh, and then that that pause will allow you to rearm, resupply, gain another advantage. the The thing is, the Israeli government is not gonna it's not gonna let up, and I view this pause as an opportunity for the United States to advise Israel and say, listen, going forward, you need to pursue a military war strategy that is targeted, that is surgical, that's deliberate, that allows you to defeat Hamas, um, but but, but also by limiting civilian deaths, because those civilian deaths don't help 
Israel's broader cause for a secure Israel. It only encourages additional poverty. It's only going to encourage future violence, even if it's not under the name of Hamas and it, they could pick a different terrorist organization. And so that is an important element of this. But um, that's kind of, that's the opportunity I see here for the US and for the Israeli side. But uh, it remains to be seen if that's that's how the Israeli government will pursue it after the pause is over. So what I want to do with the rest of this topic is put up for review the idea that Hamas is losing this battle, because I think in order to know that, you have to understand the nature of its power. And I sent this economist piece to you both that I saw earlier this week uh, about um, about Hamas's power. And essentially, the economist describes it as a as sort of a, a three legged stool or a, a braid, if you will. There's three three components. One is its finances. One one is the on the ground forces in Gaza, which we've just discussed. The fighting is going to continue. The other is its finances. And then the third is its ideas. So I want to dive into the last two sources of power, the ones that are beyond the borders of Gaza. So we know that dismantling Hamas for good requires dismantling its financial base. Very little of the money is actually in Gaza. It's held in other friendly countries. The Economist estimated that Hamas brings in over a billion dollars a year, and their financial machine has been meticulously built to avoid Western sanctions. It pays for everything from school teachers' salaries to missiles. They get about $360 million from import taxes on goods brought into Gaza from the West Bank or Egypt. But the bulk of their money, which is about $750 million a year, comes from abroad. And the U.S. estimates that Iran spends about $100 million a year on Palestinian Islamist groups, mainly in military aid. But the lion's share of Hamas's money comes through investments registered to firms in countries across the Middle East. They built the Afra Mall, Sudan's first mall. One firm built skyscrapers in the United, United Arab Emirates. Uh, U.S. officials say the firms donate to charities, which then funnel money to Hamas. Turkish officials said Hamas sometimes takes the funds directly. Um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the political leaders of Hamas living in Doha. The financiers live in Istanbul. Uh, according to The Economist, uh, President Erdogan offers them shelter. Israel's accused the Turkish government of giving Hamas members passports. They've also accused some of Turkey's biggest banks of knowingly storing Hamas's money. Uh, and from what I understand, so has the U.S. In 2021, Financial Action Task Force, which is the G7 watchdog on money laundering, placed Turkey on its gray list of countries doing little to freeze terrorist assets. So, Hagar, I want you to think about how, how can you explain this financial network uh, factoring into the goal of destroying Hamas. And I'm just going to set that on the table right now while you chew on that. Because, Mike, the other piece of this power is Hamas's ideas. And the thing I'm really interested in your take on is how so much of the discussion around Hamas, for, for, the, for the outlets even willing enough to call them terrorists, and there are some Western outlets who won't even call them terrorists, Jihad has not been part of the conversation. And if you think about terrorism as a tactic, because that's what it is, jihad is the underlying ideology that runs through not just Hamas, but ISIS. It ran through Al-Qaeda, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. All of these terrorist groups have a single feature at their core, which is the idea of jihad, which is essentially a religious sacrament 
if you think about it. Um, we have, I, and I don't think I need to explain this, unpack for people. I think they'll understand what I'm saying. But when you have recorded phone calls, for example, of the Hamas terrorists uh, in Israel on October 7th calling their mothers and fathers and saying, Dad, be pr- I just killed 10 Jews with my own bare hands, Allahu Akbar. This is a, the killing of Jews is seen as a religious sacrament in the ideology of jihad. And so what I wonder is, obviously, the U.S. made some big mistakes in the war on terror. And I think there's this sort of allergy to talking about militant Islam because it takes us back to all of those mistakes. But I wonder why we aren't having a bigger conversation about Islam's need to reform itself or Islam's need to reform itself away from at least this feature of the faith um, and what the U.S. and the Arab world need to do to put pressure on, um, on Muslim countries to help encourage that. And uh, so I want to start there if you have thoughts on that front. Uh, and then Hagar can walk us through the finances. What you're asking is a really, really big question, and it's it's kind of the, the foundational one, not just about Islam or radical Islam, but about the nature of religious fundamentalism itself. And so I want to explore that a little bit, because this is not a problem particular to Islam, although there are certain nuances which, which certainly make it more complicated, at least from a Western point of view. But as you know, you know, over the past couple of years, witnessing what we have seen in, in here domestically, what we have seen, what I saw in Brazil during the Bolsonaro campaign, what we're seeing uh, in the rise uh, throughout the West is its own form of Christian fundamentalism, which is very much predicated on this zero-sum extremism and the death to to anybody who doesn't meet this certain criteria, at least the supremacy of, 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 of white Christian fused with this nationalism. And, and that, that's the danger in my mind. Okay. I'm certainly not an expert on Islam, but I'm increasingly, you know, for the past couple of years, been studying because of the dangers that I see to democracies around the world, the fusion of religious extremism in the, uh, to the attack of democracies. And so th- this becomes very difficult in a world. Well, it's always been difficult, by the way. This has been the struggle of the world, especially, especially, um, y- you know, Islam and Christianity. I mean, this is a many thousand year history of nationalism and crusades and the Holy Land and who actually occupies these lands and what this means and infidels and you know, all of this. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the entire history of, 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 of the Western world is replete with this since, since at least the birth of Christ, if not before. So again, I don't, I don't want to make this that big of a discussion, but what I, I do want to focus on is, this idea that 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 there needs to be more moderation from responsible voices within really all three of the world's main religions, right? At least as we deal with them on the West. I'm, I'm leaving Buddhism and Hinduism aside for a moment, but but I remember Bill Clinton, you know, probably about 15 years ago. It's not not too many years after 9/11, so maybe it was a little bit longer than that. Saying that this battle between 
religious extremism, he was referring to Islam specifically, and the West was going to be the defining uh, characteristic of this century. I would submit it's probably been the defining characteristic of the past couple of you know few centuries or, or longer. Um, and, and so again, again, not a new question, right? But it's more complicated as 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 communications infrastructures start to atomize because you don't need a bilateral conflict to consume the world anymore. You just need enough. You just need 20, 25% of a religion or of a religion in a certain country to start to militarize and nationalize that sentiment. And that's the real danger to, I think, the geopolitical balance going forward is because there's a disproportionate amount of influence that extremists or hardline, more orthodox elements of any religion, any religion, but but particularly as Westerners, we look at, at Islam and say that there's you know there's where the, where are the moderate voices in Islam standing up and, and saying denouncing this type of activity, and and we don't see them enough. The rejoinder is where are the moderate Christians <laughs> saying saying this right wing Christian nationalism isn't really Christianity. There aren't enough of them at all, right? It's the same problem. And so I, I, the way I look at this problem is 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 and again I'm not an expert on on Islam. Uh, but but what I will say is I know for a fact this is not a problem particular to to one of the, to, to this religion. Uh, th- there may be specific theological elements that I'm not aware of that maybe make it more prone to that, and I, I will grant that. And I'm not educated on that, so I'm not going to speak on that. But what I am going to say is you don't need more than twenty or twenty five percent of the adherents of any major religion in any country to develop this type of extremism, which can, can rattle the undercage of a democratically instituted government. And when you, when, you, when you electrify that with a digital communication infrastructure that is global and allow this stuff to organize and be financed around the world in a way that you really can't, we can, we can track this money down, but it's like dark money in politics. You can trace it by the, by the time you find it four or five steps away, it's five years past the election you were trying to find it in, and it's already moved in a hundred different directions. It's the same thing globally, more so. And so, so you know, I, I, I know that's probably not the way you, were, you, you may have been approaching the question. I, I don't know, but I just know as somebody who's been studying this really intently, uh, watching the rise of religious extremism, and I say religious specifically because it is a particular problem rising in the West in a way we have not seen it in probably a hundred years. Right? This may have been a longer-term problem. Again, I'm not an expert in the Middle East and, and throughout the Arab world. Certainly, since the Iranian Revolution in '78, right, where 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 where, where religious fanaticism, I would argue, was fused with nationalism to, to throw off the yoke of the oppressor. Then we started to see this happening all over the place. It emanates to, to you know, the Arab Spring and uh, the Palestinian cause becomes a, a catalyst and a focus to, 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 to unite the Arab world under a religious jihad, a banner of jihad, which is religious, called the war. These are, these are, again, they're not new. They're just morphing into something that is much easier to coordinate, to fund, to organize around, and ultimately what we are realizing in the digital age is it doesn't take a majority or even a third to topple democracies. It takes a committed 20% of the adherents of any religion to upend democratically elected governments. Yeah. Um, to underscore that, we just ran uh, part two of a two-part series I did with Matthew Taylor about 
Charismatic Christianity's involvement with January 6th and uh, it was titled Holy War because it's seen as a religious struggle. Um, and, you know, there was what, what they were calling spiritual warfare, strategic spiritual warfare at the Capitol on January 6th. I think the problem that I'm trying to highlight here is that in the case of jihad, it is unique in religious extremism when it comes to violence in that the brutality and the murder of innocence is the point. That is the religious sacrament. It, when you see it in other places, there's a goal attached that is that is separate from the killing. The killing is is seen as an unnecessary uh, an, an unnecessary part of the struggle. Whereas in jihad, the killing of innocents and particular Jews, in particularly Jews, is is the point, is the goal in the first place in the in the march toward a global caliphate without any Jews or Israel on the planet, and so. I, I raise this because the ideas piece is um, is is a big part of the war, and I want to play one clip about how this idea has. This is just one narrow example of how this idea is spreading in the West, and we've talked about what happens on college campuses. But this is a professor, uh, Siraj Ahmed, at one of the CUNY colleges, speaking recently to uh, a group of people he's recruiting to become. Um, activists and and support the resistance. We've learned a lot in the past month, and we've learned perhaps that the axis of resistance is much more rational and much more strategic than Israel and and um, and the U.S. So all of this for me and my moments in the middle of the night are are reasons for optimism that I've not had for years now. But at the same time, with this optimism. It's like a slightly terrifying optimism because it's the optimism of fighters who are willing to sacrifice their life. And they understand this to be a long war. Nasrullah calls it the beginning of the end. But how long that takes, we don't know. Nasrullah is obviously the leader of Hezbollah. That's who he's quoting. Um, Hagar, I, I, uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on this thread. Um, we talked about it a little bit last night. Um, and then I'd love for you to walk us through the um, the financial problem, the, the the war against Hamas's finances, and the way they've been able to resist Western sanctions for so long and so well. I think that people are very afraid to ha- to be very real about about these issues and about this conversation and about Islamic extremism specifically and um, Islamists and. Um, I can tell you I don't shy away from using words like that. Um, and I know we don't hear on, on politicology either, but you do see that a lot in, in, um, in even in post Bush, post President Bush, you saw this kind of reticence of, of using those terms. And instead of saying violent extremism and so on, because, because the Muslim community felt, well, this is not a representation of our religion. But as Mike mentioned, um, there needs to be more calls for that. And there are moderates out there. There's, you know, um, there are a number of moderate imams who work with rabbis and so on to try and do that, but they are often drowned out from the noise um, or there just aren't enough of them sometimes. And you you saw it, you know, there was this, I'm sure you saw this, a lot of arguments of of, of individuals feeling, well, why do I need to condemn the the terrorist attack first you need you need to condemn it because we need to agree that this is wrong we need to be able to identify what's right and wrong and you see this getting very muddy in general um and i don't want to go off topic but but you see this getting very muddy with individuals who are 
either losing jobs or um, losing representatives because they make anti-Semitic statements. And it's being, and they're like, but what do you mean? I'm just, I'm just supporting the Palestinian cause. It's like, well, <laughs> there's a difference between supporting the creation of a Palestinian state and the rights for Palestinians and saying things like, um, that, you know, now like Susan Sarandon, how she was like, oh, well, now, uh, now Jews know how Muslims feel and things, you know, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to veer off topic. The fact is that while you do have extremism, of course, in every religion, um, what, what separates the ability for that extremism to grow and flourish is how harsh the crackdown is in preventing it from growing, coming from the top. And so, for example, in Israel, you had, before Israel became a state, you had an Israeli terrorist group that was pursuing terrorist attacks against the British who were there at the time. It was under British mandate. And that terrorist group has been identified and designated as a terrorist group. It is known by that inside Israel. Even in the United States, we have a difficult, we have difficulty declaring, uh, violent white supremacy groups as terrorist groups. This is, it has to come from the top. It has to be this distinguishment that, you know, somebody has to distinguish and discern. This is right from wrong. This is criminal from not. And otherwise, these interpretations are allowed to grow and extremism is allowed to flourish. And for some reason, for many different reasons, it grabs people and their hearts and minds sometimes, regardless of their economic and socio background, uh, regardless, it seems, of their educational background and so on. So when it comes to extremist Islam specifically, the, the Muslim community leaders, governments that are Muslim governments, some of them are not, some of them are secular, by the way, but are Muslim majority, some of them are Muslim governments, they need to take a stronger stand. And what I have found in my own experience working in government, in counterterrorism specifically, um, and Hamas was in my portfolio, by the way, so we'll get into that in, in, from a financial standpoint, um, is those governments will, especially after 9-11, are strong enough when it comes to uh, preventing that extremism from threatening their own power and their own governments and their and their own people. But when it comes to things going abroad, when it comes to uh, terrorist groups that are establishing themselves across Africa, across Southeast Asia now, for example, um, that's where they kind of, they, they take, pursue a hands-off approach and they don't necessarily see that it's their responsibility to make a stand. Um, some of it is that, some of it is a fear of, of, of inciting anger among their own people and who they may feel are deep down have extremist views or sympathize with extremist views. And so they don't want to upset them. So they say things that are generally weak. You see that over and over again with, with uh, the leaders of most of the, of the countries in the Middle East and North Africa, by the way. Um, they get very reticent. You see that from the Palestinian leader, Mahmoud Abbas, who at the beginning, right after the attack, a week after or so, he said that Hamas doesn't represent the policies and the people, the Palestinian people. And uh, and then the next day he deleted that sentence from his statement because he, he's too afraid of his own people. He doesn't want to lose power. Uh, he's weak and corrupt and feckless. And we could get into that. So let's get into the finances. Uh, I'm not sure, Ron, if you knew this when you asked me this question, but I worked, you know, I worked in counter-terrorist financing at the Treasury Department. I'm not sure if you were aware that Hamas was in my portfolio. And, I didn't know that. Yeah, Hamas was in my portfolio. I worked with the Israeli government very proudly um, in undermining their financial networks in addition to Hezbollah's net financial networks and um, and Iran's and so on. And the Levant, but the Levant was my region as well as Iraq. And 
Hamas's financial network is not too dissimilar to terrorist organizations like Hezbollah. Each terrorist organization differs in how it raises, moves, and stores funds. And, and it depends a lot on uh, how obviously how many people declare it a terrorist organization or identify it as such and and who doesn't. And so I'm going to put Hamas in the bucket of Hezbollah because similar to Hezbollah, you have countries out there that have not designated it as a terrorist organization, though it very clearly is, um, and uh, and who who don't see it as such, and where they have control, some kind of control over land. And, and, and that obviously helps their financial state as well. So when I say it's not too dissimilar, it's because similar to Hezbollah and other big organ, bigger organizations, Hamas is not that big, but compared to bigger ones, they usually establish quite sophisticated networks where they raise, move, and store funds through different mechanisms, through uh, charitable fronts, for example, where they actively raise funds um, to do that. Those those charities are still operating in Turkey. Um, there was one charity that was operating in Germany up until October 8th, basically, when Germany shut it down. Yeah, so there's there are charitable fronts. There are legitimate businesses, businesses that do trade, that uh, grow investment portfolios, things of this kind. Build buildings? Build buildings. Um, so they, they, they have uh, legitimate businesses and, and things of that kind. They have deep pocket donors. They have, um, in this case, as you mentioned, they get uh, finances from the export, from taxing goods that are being imported from Egypt. That is common. That's something that ISIS also did. Can I just pause to clarify one thing for listeners? Does that mean the humanitarian aid, for example, that's coming in from other places into Gaza is getting taxed and the proceeds are going to Hamas? Well, that's a bit different. No, the the issue there for humanitarian aid is not taxes because you have you have aid organizations on the ground that are there getting the aid and delivering it or trying to deliver it. The risk that you have is more um is more is Hamas skimming some of that humanitarian aid Taking off. that material for, and distributing among themselves. Yeah, either for themselves yeah. or to sell it to other people. That's where the risk you have with humanitarian aid. It's not so much that they're taxing it because they're not buying it. So it's it's a bit different, but still, you know, risky business um, that, that ends up slowing aid down and 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 becoming very tricky for 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 humanitarian aid organizations. So um, so anyway, so they they have this whole system, and obviously they have support from Iran, the US and Israel estimate it to be about a hundred million a year. So Okay, this is their network. What is surprising with Hamas is how sophisticated Hamas specifically has become in the last several years. When Hamas was in my portfolio in the government, and this was the years 2006 to, the, to, to until 2010, but still I stayed on top of these things. Um, but up until the time I left government, which was 2015, 2016, sorry, but I left Treasury in 2015. Hamas was considered relatively unsophisticated compared to the other terrorist organizations. It was relatively small. Their leaders and their followers were relatively uneducated. They were not considered to be highly advanced in whether it was their military capabilities and technology or in raising, moving, and storing funds compared to other terrorist organizations. And um, that clearly has shifted and it was evident and by the way, like it was, it was evident to a lot of Hamas watchers and experts only very recently after the October 7th attack, Treasury Department put out a, an, a sanctions action. They sanctioned a number of key Hamas terrorist group members, operatives, and financial facilitators in Gaza and elsewhere, including in Sudan, Turkey, Algeria, and Qatar. And 
what surprised me with this action was that it included members who were managing assets in a secret investment portfolio, meaning you've got Hamas leaders who are stationed abroad. Some of them are in Gaza and they're on the phone with bankers being like, you know what, you, I want you to invest here. I want you to invest there. Oh, that's great. How's my portfolio doing? There was a Gaza-based virtual currency exchange and operator. These are massive targets compared to what we're used to in in terrorist sanctions. When I saw this action, when I saw the release for it, the day, it was a couple days after the, the attack, I, I opened it thinking the same thing that you always have when you have after attack. Like, oh, the White House probably went to Treasury and said, what do you have in your hopper? What can you put out there for sanctions? And let's see. These were massive targets. And it reflected not only massive, you know, undertakings and efforts to raise funds that were going freely unnoticed or noticed, um, but what the what what struck me was that not only how big it was and important and and money making, but that clearly people knew about it, and it was and yeah, that's the thing that I, usually this when is the you question have, that's like burning on my mind right now. I'm waiting for you to finish, but like, what the fuck? Yeah. If we knew about when it, when I saw that, my first thought was yes. Was I was like, wait. Did you know about this and you let it happen? Were you working behind the scenes with Turkey, Algeria, Qatar, and Sudan to try and crack down from there? Because Treasury does that too, um, instead of making a massive a massive announcement. But to me, it it fell in line with how Israel had been viewing the threat from Hamas as kind of deprioritized on the list of priority threats, and. And that's and now that's not going to be the case anymore. And I I do think while I think it's it's scary and terrifying, so the the lesson in all this is that you really can't take your eye off the ball with any terrorist group, but particularly Hamas, it seems. And the thing is that we have the tools to go after the financial networks of terrorist groups. We've done it time and again, particularly with Al Qaeda. Our financial our effort to dismantle their financial networks was very successful. But what made it successful is the fact that everybody around the world identified Al-Qaeda as a terrorist organization. And therefore, they didn't want their fundraisers, their deep pocket donors, their financial networks, their charities. They did not want them in their countries and in their international finance and, and in their own financial systems. The risk you have with Hamas, and we've seen Hezbollah be able to do this as well, by the way, that's why I kind of put them together in a bucket, um, is when you have countries that just refuse to agree that they refuse to identify them as terrorist organizations. And on the contrary, in countries like Turkey and Qatar in particular, have invited their their business and have helped them work around and 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 may find workarounds and figure out seamless ways to raise, move, and store funds, um, it undermines it, it undermines any effort to to go after it. But I will say, I do think that things will be different after October 7th because these are two countries that are partners of the United States. And I know that they were before, Qatar and Turkey were before. And I can tell you when I was at the Treasury Department, we would pressure Qatar immensely and repeatedly to stop allowing Hamas, known Hamas financiers to roam freely in, in Qatar and to raise funds and to recruit people and so on. But after October 7th, I think that the leverage that the U.S. will have in pressuring tr- Turkey and Qatar to do that, if the U.S. prioritizes that and says, you got to do this or else we're not going to be able to work with you on XYZ. We're not going to be able to give you intelligence cooperation. We're not going to be able to give you technical assistance. We have things points of leverage over them, 
um, it's just about prioritizing that battle. And if they do, and I think after October 7th, they'll have the opportunity to, then I do think you could see a real dent in that, in that financial network. Okay. After years of listening to Mike Madrid scream into the void, the rest of the world of professional politics has realized that Democrats might have a Latino problem. <laughs> the problem with being 20 years ahead of your time. It's a long wait. In the round of polls that came out earlier this month, uh, you know, the ones Joe Biden tried to discredit when he was talking to reporters a couple of weeks ago, there were signs of weakening support for Biden, especially among younger voters and Latinos. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mike, when you were on. Uh, just to refresh people's memory, this is um, uh, this was the New York Times-Siena poll. There was another Bloomberg poll that reinforced those right afterwards. Uh, but what I want to talk about today are young people and Latino voters. So the shift among Latino voters isn't new. Um, and this shift, by the way, is in CNN's national poll, Trump led Biden among voters under 35 years old, 48 to 47. But in these polls, Biden's still holding on to a lead among Latino voters, but it's tight. Four points in the national poll, eight points in the battleground states. Um, so, and for context, Biden won Latino voters by 30 points in 2020. So the shift, right, as we've talked about many, many times, isn't new. It's part of a trend you've been talking about for years. But Biden's also taking a hit for his strong support of Israel now among young people. There was a poll from early November in Michigan showing him getting just 16% of the Arab Muslim vote in the state. Uh, in a new NBC poll, Biden has a 41% disapproval among Democrats for his handling of the Israel-Hamas war. So he's plus 10 among Democrats, but he's also 30 points underwater among independents on the issue. 31 approve, 59 disapprove. Biden's poor polling among younger voters and Latinos have both gotten a lot of attention over the last few weeks, but they look different. Can you talk about how you're thinking about the movement for younger voters first and how resilient do you think that movement will be? And then we'll pivot over to Latinos and why that problem may be more intractable. So m most great questions, and there's both sort of the, there's a methodological question, which is really important that we should talk about. And then there's kind of the practical political implications. And I'm going to start with the practical political implications here first. Y young voters, this Gen Z age cohort, younger than millennials, this Gen Z, this 18 to 25-year-old basically demographic when we're politically speaking, has shown something that is a little bit unique amongst young people. We've apathy and, and disconnectedness is, is very, very common with this demographic. We always say, if you're relying on young people to win your elections, you're, you're not going to win <laughs> because they're just not going to be there. And for very good reason, 99% of the time, that's been accurate, okay? Ever since we allowed or lowered the voting age threshold in the mid-70s during the Vietnam War from 21 to 18, um, because if you're old enough to fight in a war, you should be old enough to vote. Uh, we have seen very low levels of voter participation. But another really striking characteristic of Gen Zs is they are decidedly, and I'll be very specific about how I characterize this, anti-Republican. doesn't mean they're pro-Democratic Party. And there's a very big difference between being anti-Republican and pro-Democrat, Okay. And and it's 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 it, there. There's also this is a demographic that Joe Biden specifically has not done well with at all. Okay, there's very high negatives from this group of voters, but in the end, they have come home and they have voted for him overwhelmingly. Again, 
there's a very big mistake made, and both parties do this every election cycle, is when they win, they take it as a mandate saying, see, these people like me, they like us, let's go do what we were going to do. That's very different than saying, you're the lesser of two evils. And so the Democratic Party finds itself right now, generally, and, and, and Joe Biden specifically, in a situation with younger voters where they are the beneficiaries of very strong anti-Republican sentiment. That does not mean that they're going to show pro-Biden support in any polls coming up to the elections. We saw this in 2020, and we saw this in the 2022 midterms. In both cases, they ultimately showed up, and they broke by historic margins towards the, the Democratic candidate. But what you're seeing, this weakness, is a real weakness. The bigger concern most Democratic operatives will say is not that they're going to vote for Republicans or that they're going to vote for, for Trump. They believe that that's correctable. The question is, will they show up at all if they don't have anything either aspirational or positive to vote for? This is why Biden, six months out of the midterms, really pushed the, the forgiveness of college loans uh, issue to try to, 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 to remedy that. It didn't seem to work. The beneficiaries, the Democrats became the beneficiaries of the Dobbs decision, and the Supreme Court did more than anything Biden or anything the Democrats was doing to compel these voters to not only show up with this existential, very real threat that had been abstract in terms of abortion rights, and they voted in, against this conservative court and against the conservative uh, politicians who were putting them there. The question, again, remains largely on that issue alone is how sustainable is that? It seems to have some staying power, at least to this point. We saw it just a couple weeks ago in the Virginia elections. We saw it in the uh, Ohio uh, Resolution 1 issue that came up. We've seen it. We saw it in Kentucky. This break seems to be there. It does seem to be be sustained, or at least to this point. We'll see what happens in the 2024 elections. My guess is it probably will be. But there's a methodological question, too, which has raised a lot of concerns. People looking at this poll are saying, not only is Trump doing very well with these young people, which he's historically suffered uh, you know, these bad breaks from, this, this would be a, a really peculiar sea change, but it also shows Biden winning with senior citizens, a group that Biden has not done well. Exactly, right? It, for those of you listening, sorry, I'm making a face. Yeah, for those of you listening at home, Ron's making this face. Like, what are you talking about? The same poll shows Biden winning amongst seniors. So you've got to ask yourself about the methodology when you do see something this significant change. If suddenly the Republican or the Democrat is winning against seniors, and the Republican is also essentially winning with young people, is something just squirrely with this poll? And the answer for at least young people, there seems to be a lot of evidence that there is this separation, this delta between uh, people who are answering their phones and and traditional online platforms where younger people seem to live more. Now, I I'm of the belief that if you get the sample size, no matter how you get the sample size, chances are the error is in your direction. And it's very hard for me to understand, and I'm not saying I'm right, I'm just saying it's very hard for me to understand what that disassociation would be. Are the very few young conservatives out there more likely to answer their online phones than the overwhelming number of young progressives? Like, that seems a little bit peculiar. I could be wrong, but that just seems a little bit odd. 
There's probably not a class distinction. There might be. There's probably not as much of a racial distinction, although that certainly does exist with younger conservatives. But what does that mean in terms of phone response and not just phone response, but online response and response at all? So these are questions that pollsters are really looking at saying the actual voting results over the last two election cycles are showing something dramatically different than what we're finding in polling. That, so that's some of the challenges pollsters are looking at as they're trying mm. to discern the youth vote. Now, put a pin in that. They are not saying this with Latino voters. Across the board, everyone is saying a shift is happening. Yeah. Okay? There's no yeah. methodological problems. There's no sample size problem. There's no country of origin problem. There's no problems. We're seeing it online. We're seeing it, we're seeing it uh, in panel polls. We're seeing it. Uh, everybody's poll is showing this shift. The only group that's saying it's not happening are the, is the Biden campaign's people, which we're saying it's not happening in 2020, and they were dramatically wrong. And that's the same group of people that were saying it's not happening in 2016, and they were off by a, 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 an extraordinary six points at the time, and it caused them to lose Florida, amongst other states, and throw the election from Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. So you've got to be really careful with the people who are saying it's not happening. The only people at this point, the only people saying it's not happening are the partisan Democratic operatives who have been wrong on this consistently in three of the last four elections. That's a major red flag for me. Major. It always was. And I've, I've been right on four of the four last elections. I'm not saying I'm going to be right again, but you know I've, I've got a pretty good track record of this. And everybody who's been saying Madrid's full of it has been uh, three of the last four times they've been wrong. Yes. So I want to underscore something. What you're saying is that the people who are most likely to deny that this is a real problem are the very people who stand to lose the most from it being real. 100%. So, so I want to dig into this a minute because every time we talk about this, for the people who do recognize it as a problem, you see this all over Twitter. I, I, I sometimes I go through the replies to your tweet <laughs> threads and I look at like what people are saying. It's actually hilarious yeah, the, the state of delusion that most people <laughs> yeah. are in. I mean, the commenters, and obviously, many many of these are these are Democrats, uh, lots of Democratic voters. Um, the 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 most common refrain that I see. What do we do about not it? Not just in your comments. <laughs> no, no, no. Not even not just what do we yeah. do about it. Yes, yeah, so a lot of people say what do we do about it, but the. Answer to the question, what do we do about it, is always presumed to be, oh, man, if we could just fix our messaging, right? Yeah. Here's what I want to talk yeah. about. Because anyone, anytime anybody talks about who actually recognizes this as a big problem, like a, a, a catastrophic problem on the horizon, this shift of Latino voters away from Democrats is a reflexive move to label it as a messaging yes. problem. But it's so much bigger than that. It's not as simple as if Democrats can talk better, they'll recoup all these voters there are genuinely big policy disagreements and failures here. And this is the thing I don't see anybody reckoning with. And I wonder if it might be behind their unwillingness to recognize it as a problem in the first place, because it would mean looking at policies that have That's, failed. The New York Times poll included a question. Sorry, go ahead. Well, let me, let me just add a little a flavor to that, a little context. And, and both sure. parties fall victim to this. But 95% yeah. of the time, when you hear people saying, we just don't communicate it well, or we don't message it right, it's denial. It's very condescending. It's, it's, condes it's extremely condescending. It's like, and, wow, if only we could educate if they're, them. They're too dumb to understand <laughs> the, what's best for right. them is what that means, right? right? It's like these people aren't right. able to discern 
what they're actually saying. They're just not smart enough. And I, I get that a lot too. And people saying, oh, this is about Spanish language misinformation. It's like, that's so condescending. <laughs> First of all, the Spanish speaking voter is only like 10, 12% of the entire Latino votes. One. And two, right. because they speak Spanish, they're not, they're not able to understand what they want. Like it's it's just it's so extremely offensive, but but it's and people just act like that's a normal okay response. It's like oh, it's just they're just they just don't understand. It's like <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So so I want to get I want to offer a couple of examples for the table, and then have you have you talk. I want what I want to do is try and get at what are the actual policy changes that might help the Democrats better position themselves instead of talking about, wow, if we just put it in a different language or put some spin on this messaging, it might bring them home. The New York Times poll included a question about whether Biden and Trump's policies had helped or hurt the respondent personally. Among Hispanic voters, 48% said Biden's policies hurt them, 41% saying they had helped. So he's minus seven there. Donald Trump was plus four, 44 said Yes, they helped. 40% said no uh, among Hispanic voters. In that poll, two-thirds of Latinos said that economic issues like jobs, taxes, cost of living were more important than societal issues like abortion, guns, or democracy. Swing state Hispanic voters said they trusted Trump to handle the economy better by 20 points. 20 points. And you get there not just because of messaging, but because there's been high inflation over the last two years. So we've now got rising interest rates. They've pushed up mortgage rates and brought housing market to a standstill. Mortgage rates have gone from 3% to now about 8%. And if you understand what that does over the course of a 30-year mortgage, it doubles the cost of a home. I don't think people quite recognize that. If you're going to buy a home for, let's say, $400,000 and interest rates go from where they were to where they are now, that home now costs $800,000. That's a, it, it, it's, it, it's not, I think, very well uh, understood. Um, millions of homeowners are now unwilling to move because they locked in lower mortgage rates before the Fed increased rates. Home sales fell 4.1% from September to October. It's the slowest pace of sales since 2010, 13 years. So there's less supply, higher rates, meaning that people can't afford to buy homes. Um, and in August, CNN reported that buying a median-priced home would require a monthly principal and interest payment of $2,440 for people making a 20% down payment. And that's up over $1,100 from a month, uh, a month from just two years ago. So housing is now the least affordable that it has been since 1984, according to uh, Black Knight, which is the mortgage technology and data provider. So, uh, so back to this tension, like the real policy tension that Latino voters have with the Democratic Party on uh, climate change spending and how it impacts working class voters, something you've teased apart before. Um, Democrats will counter concerns about crime by saying that violent crime is back to pre-pandemic levels, but they won't talk about the 7% jump in property crime or 8% jump in carjackings from just 2021 to 2022. Uh, And there are still frustrations over COVID policies, school closures and vaccine mandates among them, particularly among suburban women. And those frustrations have still to this day gone unaddressed. And I've talked with uh, misinformation, disinformation specialists who recognize that one of the things that we have failed to do is be accountable for what happened, the failures during the COVID policies. Uh, uh, So I, I lay all this at your feet. And I think the big question is, if you were speaking to policymakers, democratic policymakers, 
what do they need to do to what do they need to change to to make to create a better appeal to Latino voters with their actions, with their policies, and not just with uh, you know a hope and a prayer in their advertising. Okay, so a lot of what I get on social media when I bring up these issues because there's basically panic setting in, and there should be, by the way. You know, as, as the guy who coined the term the ban in line, I'm telling you there's only marginally so many more white Republican college-educated suburban women you're going to get. And if you start to see this continued rightward shift, you're not, and you're not getting any more Republican women crossing over, you're in trouble. Okay, especially if you've only won the election by 30, 40,000 votes across three states. And those three states, by the way, the Hispanic vote is going to be much larger than that margin. Georgia, a Mexican-American vote. Arizona, huge Mexican-American vote. Wisconsin, more Latino voters, Mexican-American vote than there are black voters in Wisconsin. Okay, so I'm telling you right now, if the Democrats and Biden campaign don't get their shit together they're going to lose this race on the Latino vote. And I've never, as, as, as you know, for 30 years I've been watching the Latino vote, I've never said that before. I'm saying it now, okay? So now, the, there's the bigger problem, the 30,000-foot problem, is the Democratic Party cannot come to terms with the fact that it is no longer viewed by working-class people as the working-class party. Like, it's just, it's inconscionable to them. So it, it never even occurs to them. The diploma divide in this country which has been happening for the better part of a decade, is on warp speed now. College-educated people are rallying under the banner of the Democratic Party at an unprecedented rate. Working-class, non-college-educated people are rallying under the banner of the Republican Party at, a, at, a, at, at warp speed as well, just as fast. So this divide, which is becoming a cultural divide, is the most significant indicator of, of how you're going to vote. It's bigger, by the way, then income, which is something new. That means if you're non-college educated and you started a business and you, you, you're voting uh, you, and, you, and you make $150,000, $300,000 a year, you're still more likely to vote Republican, okay? And if, you, if, you've, if, you, if you've got a college degree, but you can't get a job for more than $35,000, $40,000 because your degree isn't as valuable as you th- was hoping it was going to be, you're still much more likely to vote for a Democrat. So having a degree or not having a degree is the dividing line. And in America right now, demographically, the fastest growing segment of the non-college educated demographic is Latinos, are Latinos, by the way, U.S. born. And that's extremely significant as we go forward. So that's the table setting. Let me give three specific examples because I get crucified on social media all the time of people going, you always point out the problem. You never provide the solutions. It's like I've been doing it for 20 years on two podcasts, <laughs> writing a book about it. I, you, know, I, I, like, you just don't like the answers. I mean, no one's been saying this bigger, louder than I for decades. People are like, you always point out the problem. You never want the solutions. So I'm going to give you a past problem solution i'm going to give you a current problem and i'm gonna talk about the future a little bit too very quickly the first in the past is the covid stuff was very very real for latinos very specifically how and why okay let me explain we called it the essential workforce these are the people that were still working at grocery stores moving cargo delivering your food to you so that you had the luxury of staying at home and staying out of the petri dish that was america during this deadly disease but who wasn't Overwhelmingly, it was Latino workers that were in that petri dish 
eyeballs deep in this stuff, keeping the economy going so that the overclass could work from home, could watch Tiger King and have their pizzas delivered to them so that they could keep them and their families safe. No surprise, Latinos got disproportionately impacted by COVID. They were in it. They were swimming in it. So you know what? If you're in that environment, why would you not want the economy open? You're in it anyway. You need to make more money. Your family is not safer. In fact, it's less safe because you're the only ones out there in it. So if if, if you've got to make it, you've got to survive. You need more hours. You need more money. You need the economy moving. You need more customers tipping if you're a waiter or if you're a busboy. You need more people up and on and on and on. So that impact was very real politically. Okay, when the Democrats were saying shut down the economy, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying this is just reality. This is what happened. And the Republicans are saying open it up, open it up, open it up. That had a very real impact in the 2020 cycle, and there are still legacies happening from that. Keep in mind, Latino demographic average age is 29 years old. That's child rearing age. You got kids in school at that age. Okay, so schools are are shut down. You've got to get out there. You don't have a job where you can work remotely. You got to you know uh, uh, keep the family afloat. That's where that's just where life was at. Present day, you made it a very articulate case, Ron, about construction and interest rate. Now people say it's not it's not up to Joe Biden. Yeah, you're right. It's not up to Joe Biden. But you know what? You're the president of the United States, so you get the beneficiary of things that aren't your fault, and you get the downside of of, of, of what's going wrong. And at this point. Interest rates, let me explain just how impactful this is to the Latino economy. One in five Latino men, 20% of Hispanic men work in the construction field or related industries. That is jaw-dropping. It's enormous. It's like all the house building that's going on or not going on is essentially done by Hispanic workers. And related fields. Should we understand them and, and also like the impact of that beyond those 20% as the breadwinners for families? Yes, of course, absolutely. Like the multiplier of that is extraordinary. That alone, that one statistic alone with what has happened with the complete stoppage of building homes explains the 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 uh, the the economic anxiety by the way and I, I i i tweeted this too and it got some funny pushback i'm like if you think your problem with blue collar voters is in the rust belt and gretchen whitmer and T- tim ryan and amy klobuchar are going to save you you're not paying attention to what's happening that's not where your problem is that's just kind of a a, a coastal white progressive elite yeah i just said it I said things it. have changed. Things, you haven't you caught not up. caught up. You haven't been paying for 15 years. Like that's Gretchen Whitmer can't save you. Sorry, Whitmer. I, I don't really like that. That's not. It's not this. The salvation is not in diners. They're going to be taquerias in Maricopa County in Arizona. They're going to be and the in the burbs of Atlanta, and they are going to be outside of Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That's your. That's where you need to focus. That's where these voters at. So anyway, so, so sorry about that rant, but that that alone, that construction, uh, those numbers, 20% of Hispanic men work in the, in the residential construction space. Again, I, it's jaw-dropping. So that, that policy alone explains that demographic, that, that, that shift. And Biden's going to have to come up with very specific prop proposals, make it easier to, 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 uh, to, to buy a home. There's a million ways to do that with tax credits. Uh, which people you know snicker and, and guffaw at, but that's what's driving electric vehicle production. 
tax credits that the Democrats are using. So you may say it's Reaganomics or trickle down, it doesn't work or whatever. It, Obama created them called Opportunity Zones. Actually, he didn't create them. He stole them from Jack Kemp, who called them you know, uh, Enterprise Zones. And he just renamed them Opportunity Zones. But it's a Republican idea. Start implementing some of these things. Kind of, kind of like Romney Care became Obamacare. Yeah, but anyway. parties steal from each other all the time. Have at it. Steal their stuff. But if it works, <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. going to get people pounding hammers and nails into A-frames to start building houses, then, then do it. Like Until you start building residential space, and also, by the way, that increased supply brings the price of housing down. And who are first-time homebuyers? Hispanics. So you get this double effect of, of, of stimulating the home buying economy at a time when it's harder to buy it since 1984. So that just just focusing like a laser beam, a Marshall Plan for housing will dramatically change the fortunes of, of where Biden's at politically with the Latino voter. And then the third, look, you may not like it, sorry, but the reality is as Latinos increasingly every week, month, going forward are going to start enveloping this blue-collar workforce. That means we work in places like, again, construction just told you how big that was, agriculture, you all know that, manufacturing, fishing, timber, uh, the energy patch. Okay, There's a reason why the Rio Grande Valley shifted so hard to the right. There's a reason why New Mexico, especially in, on the southern part near the border, shifted to the right as significantly as it did. These are energy producing states that stuff matters these are real jobs for these folks and if you're gonna read oil it's oil and if you're gonna get off of oil and i think that's virtuous and we're gonna have to at some point right you can't sell people this quote-unquote idea of green jobs that has never really materialized because it, it hasn't so you're gonna have to find a way from a policy perspective to address the fact that all of these blue-collar industries that incidentally view the Democratic Party as the enemy of their industries. Look, look, at, look mm -hmm. at what I just said. Agriculture, mining, mm -hmm. fishing, timber, energy, housing construction. You ask all of those workers when they're white, those are not Democratic voters. Those are Republican voters. So you replace them with Latino voters demographically in that workforce. Why are we shocked that they're voting the same way for their own livelihoods when you think that they should be supporting you to defund the police? Because so they're brown. Or to, because they're brown. That, by the way, which is a form of racism, by the way, my Democratic friends. Yeah. Like, that's what's happening. <laughs> and and it's, it's so obvious. But when you come in your own silo and you look at this stuff in your own partisan lens, you start to say, well, why would you, you know, you're all going to be in cages and you're all going to be deported, you know, when Donald Trump is going to be there. It's like, <laughs> well, I saw so you, I guess. Like, why are the yeah. arguments? <laughs> and, and this need to kind of have all these conversations at diners when they're white. And here it's just this, you know, you're too ignorant to know what's best for you. Like that, that's not, that doesn't fly in blue collar culture. It doesn't fly with anybody. Nobody wants to be told that no human being that that message will not work with anybody. So that's my answer. Why that's my answer. With Latino. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. You had a nice long wind up because I, I just, we had a big long editorial meeting yesterday and I was like, I'm tired of talking about how can we just message better? Because that's not actually addressing the real problem. It's not the problem. You can't message without good policy. Okay. And the problem is the orthodoxy of the Democratic Party is that Latinos are worried about the border. So you talk about 
border issues, you talk about kids in cages, and you talk about farm worker issues. Like that's all they've got. And and here's one other really fascinating tidbit is this shift to the right started happening measurably around 2014. You know what else started happening in 2014? The actual composition, the demographic composition of the Latino electorate started becoming far more U.S. born. 80%, 80% now of Latino voters are U.S. born. So these people are not worried about the border the way you think they are. They're not on WhatsApp in Spanish talking to people back home in Colombia or Mexico or the Dominican or whatever you think they are from these narratives that are being driven. That's not what's doing it. Most of these people are English exclusive or certainly English dominant. They're not watching Univision. They're not communicating in Spanish. They don't even live in Hispanic dense communities. They're out in the burbs. They got college education. They're they're ascending the the economic ladder slower than I would like, slower than we would like because of some bad policies, especially in some states where there are a lot of Latinos. But it is happening, and their voting behaviors are starting to mirror that. And so until the Democratic Party gets back to its working class roots, it's not going to win these voters. And by the way, one of the caveat to that. Build back better is not the way you talk to Latinos about your your hard hat jobs. I think that's great that in 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to be building bridges. That doesn't pay the rent on Friday. And blue collar people have never looked, ever looked to government, except for maybe in the 30s during the Roosevelt era, okay, uh, as a way for job creation. That's what the that's what in, in the mid eighties. That's what Ronald Reagan. That's why we call them Reagan Democrats. The, Demo, the, the the Democrats didn't believe that shit. Blue collar workers did not buy that. So I'm not saying it was bad policy. I'm saying it's if you're relying on that for good politics, you're missing the point, and you don't understand blue collar workers. It's not just Latino workers. It's blue collar workers, and that's where the problem is. It's not in the diners outside of you know Cincinnati, Ohio guys. That's not where the problem is. Start looking in, in Phoenix or Mesa, Arizona. Taquerias make for a better campaign stop anyway. And better food. I mean, who <laughs> better needs more food. hash browns? <laughs> better food. Right. Hagar, do you want to get in here on the uh, you know problems for the Democratic Party? I was going to ask you about young people and whether the administration you think is, um, you know, there, there's some apprehension about the movement with young people um, and whether or not they're looking at shifting policy because of it. And uh, and if those numbers are actually soft, soft or will resolve, there's a lot. TikTok is losing its yes. mind. Yeah, like the world is upside yes, down. Yes, it, it is. And the people who use it, but but we also have to say, we talked a lot about TikTok as the devil and you know sort of accountable to China. But the same exact trends on Israel Hamas can be seen on Instagram and Facebook. So. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you actually switched it that way because I would now I would never want to pretend to be an expert or to know anywhere near as much Mike knows on this issue. So um and I have been just been sitting here in awe. I feel like my eyes are just so far open because even I sitting in Connecticut <laughs> have, you know, I read Hillbilly Elegy and I was like, aha, it's the Appalachian Trail. And you know, those the those those workers are not being reached out to and, and Mike just kind of blew that out of the water. Um, thankfully, by the way. And uh, but but my angle, at least the angle that I understand and have been following closely, is what's been happening with young voters following this conflict. And and I do think that a lot of the concern is being a little bit blown out of proportion. But I will say that a poll that I saw uh, from NBC News was that in asking voters about how they approve of Biden's handling of the Israel Hamas war, um, it is the ages 
18 to 34, he gets 20% approval and 70% disapprove. And, um, and, and that, and so he's 50 points, right? Underwater with the youngest group of voters, basically. And you've seen this a lot in the press. You've seen voters, um, uh, some of them are progressive. Some of them are Arab American, Muslim American, saying that they regret voting for Biden and that they're not going to vote for him again in next year. And uh, and that matters, especially in a state like Michigan. That's not going to matter everywhere, but in Michigan, which is a key swing state that 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 Biden really needs to win uh, in, in next year, um, that that will matter. There's a very large Arab American and very large Muslim American community. Uh, that said. I don't believe it. I have to be honest with you. Trump, if I mean, if they really are voting, if they say, if they are sticking to that and they say they're voting based on Biden's support for Israel um, and they really, you know, wait a year. And I don't think that this is going to be in the news the way it is now in a year. Uh, the wars... Yeah, I mean, you already see it with Ukraine, but but Ukraine is a war that's going to continue. Ukraine is in a stalemate. We could talk about that another time. Um this war is going to end much faster as, as they typically do between Israel and Gaza. I think there'll be a longer term effort to assassinate Hamas leaders and so on to really get to, to, to defeat them. But the, the way you see things now is going to end pretty quickly, um, as, as far as wars go. And so it's not going to be at the forefront of their minds, but let's pretend that it is and that they really say they, they really promise these young progressive voters and, and Arab American and Muslim American voters say that this is, this is what's going to, drive their vote. Well, I really don't think you can compare. When you look at Donald Trump and what he did during his presidency to move the embassy to Jerusalem, to recognize the Golan Heights, these are things that, that no U.S. president, no matter the administration, did. And um, and if you had Trump right now, I th- I think that the support for Israel and how it's communicated and what happens in terms of, let's say, weapons shipments and, and things of that kind would be would be even louder. And so I, th- I think that's a very, I, and I, by the way, I just don't think it's going to drive. Their vote as foreign policy very rarely drives an American vote. So that's that's all I would say on that, is that it's different from the Latino Latino vote, Mike, and and, and I would trust everything Mike says um, on that. I hope others are listening to his predictions. But that's my view is really just in that specific world. Well, um, they can get the book soon. <laughs> yep. And I do think the last thing I'll say on TikTok is, yes, I think 50% of, of Americans are getting their news from TikTok and it is not somewhere the U.S. government is present. And they can't be at this stage, but uh, but I, I do believe that they're going to, unless it, unless it gets banned, which I don't think is going to happen, um, I do believe they need to find a way around that because they're... Th- Kids there are not getting, they're getting their news on TikTok, but it's not from mainstream outlets. It's not like they're following CNN and NBC News on TikTok. They're following different news organizations, some of which are established, some of which are just news personalities and, uh, you know, influencers. So that's something the U.S. government has to crack for sure. Okay, let's get into OpenAI. <laughs> this is happening so quickly. So... The Silicon Valley roller coaster ride sort of kicked into high gear over the last week. Last Friday, the board of OpenAI decided to fire their CEO, Sam Altman. Talked about OpenAI on their flagship, ChatGPT, on the show before a few times. Uh, over the last year, Altman's become the global face of AI. Um, after the news about his firing broke, there was pretty widespread condemnation of the board. Um, they had anticipated an external campaign to resist the move. They didn't anticipate the scale of the backlash or near unanimity with which their employees objected. 
So now more than 700 of OpenAI's 770 employees sign an open letter to the board calling for them to resign and Altman's return, they threatened to quit. Taking the story full circle, late on Tuesday, OpenAI reached a deal in principle for Altman to return as CEO. Uh, But I think this episode can give us some insight into the tensions building within the community of AI researchers and leaders. So I don't really want to get, let's set aside the back and forth stuff that's still moving and taking shape right now. It doesn't really matter. What you should know is that Microsoft owns half of OpenAI and has basically said, you know, no matter where these guys end up, they're working with us, uh, which is true. Um, uh, So however the staffing, the personnel issues shake out, I think what was revealed in this episode is the tension I think that's reflected, represented between Sam Altman and his co-founder, Ilya Sutskever. Ilya is the chief scientist. Ilya is sort of in the, we need to slow down camp, uh, the development of, of AI and really get safety right. Um, he's not saying we should pause. That was never realistic. But he is saying like, we're at a 10, we should be at like a one or two. Uh, and Sam is operating on the idea that, no, actually, the more time that we can buy for civilization to wrap its head around the way this is going to change everything and for us to build resiliences uh, around it, the better, because it is coming faster whether we do it or somebody else does. So, um, you know, it it's kind of like, okay, the way to understand it, this is there, we're not going to slow this down. I think what this entire episode has shown, and that they're now bringing Sam back, or at least that's the provisional agreement, is that Ilya's lost big time. He regrets having led this charge against Sam now. He said that publicly. Uh, They're going to replace the board because the board doesn't seem to understand anything about the company. But the tension between the two, I think, and, and who won and why, I think is worth noting because it's a signal to the rest of us that money's always going to win. The advancement of technology really can't be stopped. There is no constraining this technology in particular. It's too big and moving too quickly, not just here, but around the world, especially in China. What we need to start thinking about is not even regulation, because I think it's a quaint idea that regulation is going to be able to front run technology. It never has. It never will. That isn't the way the world works. That isn't the way innovation works. The government's always going to be playing catch up. I think the question is, how can we prepare ourselves for the world that is coming? And that's what I wanted to put on the table. It's a really big question, but the, but the tension is really over. I think the matter, the matter of whether AI can be paused or stopped or slowed or halted or whatever, that, that ship has sailed. Those conversations are futile at this point. It is coming. It's coming quickly. And we need to start recognizing all of the ways this is about to, uh, change civilization and uh and one of the one of those ways is obviously in a in a in a workforce displacement the likes of which i think we have never seen in human history and what do we do with that um Ilya gave this really great ted talk uh about a month ago i think and he he said Essentially, the last, you know, the, the, the closing was, you know, for every positive thing that AI is going to um, manifest, there's going to be a negative possibility, likelihood. It will be used for bad act, for, by bad actors. 
to create chaos to, you know, from anything from sort of decisions about weapons targeting to, um, you know, the, the, the engineering manufacturing of chemical weapons, the chemical compounds of which would have been unfathomable to us previously, the ease of manufacturing, all kinds of things can and will go wrong. Here's where he ended on a hopeful note. His reason for optimism is that because AI and what it will be able to do, and by the way, when we're talking about AI, we should be talking about how close we are to artificial general intelligence, which is essentially, um, you know, networked computers that are smarter than all of networked humanity has ever been. The machines will be smarter than us. And I know that sounds like a science fiction future, but it's the future that we are headed toward very quickly. And I think more quickly than people recognize in that world, AI becomes such an existential threat to our species that human beings have no choice but to collaborate and cooperate with one another. It, beca- it creates a forcing function to get all of us on the same page about the one thing that we can agree on, which is that human beings should survive and actually um, the robots shouldn't kill us all. <laughs> and I'm, I'm putting this all very kind of glibly, but at its core, that was his argument, that his reason for, optim- for optimism was this, this, is, this is such a, this is a species level event. And if we are going to survive, let alone thrive, that's a different question. If we're all going to survive it together, we're going to have to work together across all kinds of borders and across all kinds of differences and across all kinds of uh, conflicts. So that's what I wanted <laughs> you both to think about a little bit. What do you think, Mike? Well, I mean, just briefly on the coup, I think it was probably the worst coup attempt since Pergozin rolled on Moscow, right? <laughs> like, come on. Come on, man. Think about it a little bit. Coup by boardroom. Coup, yeah. Um, yeah. But you're, look, I, I, I'm, I'm smiling because uh, one of my favorite TED Talks, I forget the, 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 the gentleman's name who gave it, but he was really stripping down to the brass tacks of what allowed our species to be successful in the first place. And it it really comes down to one characteristic and that characteristic is empathy. We want and need each other to survive. That's, that is how this species with a big brain and no body armor that was susceptible to disease and weakness. And like, we're pretty weak as it comes to, we don't have much natural defense except for this computer in our brains right and 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 you know we were meant to be together we, we are a, we are a social species a lot of us like to be alone more than others but at a certain point we need each other to survive and we've gotten away from that during the internet era in a way we never really anticipated maybe this is exactly what the anecdote is that brings us back to our greatest strength this is our marginal strength. Here's how, here's how we got out of the slime together and started to live in caves together and showed each other how to warm by fire and shared the deer we hunted down or the berries we picked, right? Is there's, there's this basic, the only way, look, it's, it's hard. To, first of all, yeah, you're right. We're not going to stop technology. And what's it going to be a six month pause? I mean, what is that? Like, we're going to figure it out in six months and we haven't figured it out in, in thousands of years, right? So no, it's coming. 
And it's going to change our way of life in, in ways that we can't understand. The same way when we, you know, fortified steel, we never thought, well, we're going to build these skyscrapers that are higher than two or three stories high. And that created all sorts of mental health issues with that many people living that densely and supply chain issues and disease issues and fire issues and all sorts of things, right? Like society changes, humanity adapts, but what ultimately has always made it work, whether it was the wheel or the printing press or the vaccine or fortified steel or the internet is empathy. It's our need to see each other and to see each other succeed. And maybe this is what it is. I'm choosing to be optimistic here, but I love that setup that you had is at some point, the only thing we can do to prepare for it is, is be like, we, we're, we're in this together and we're going to get out of it together because if we're not, and we're, you know, we're going to hang alone if we don't hang together. And that's, that's, I think, ultimately what it comes down to. So it takes a lot to get me to that optimistic point, but I, yeah. I do find it a lot on this show. But I, I but I, I am optimistic. I think this is a good moment for. I, I'm betting on the humans. I, I'm put, put put me on human beings. <laughs> put me up on the board. I'm with the humans. We beat the robots. I while Hagar's while Hagar's thinking about what she wants to say about this, I will just note I was watching this um, conversation. One of my favorite people is uh, Pete Holmes, the comedian. I think he's he's just brilliant really brilliant dude we have similar backstories and uh, and i i relate to him in a lot of ways I'm also mutual friends but um he was talking about this theory uh i'm not sure that it's uh true but it's certainly a, a theory that the reason that the fish uh you know grew grew legs and crawled out of the ocean and and ultimately became human beings is because hey something from space hit the planet and the oceans became too toxic and they had to leave. They had to. So this in a way is, a, is the story of, of, of evolution and what is the next stage of human evolution? Maybe it is a new level of human cooperation and, and collaboration. Hagar. You know what's so funny? You took that there because that was where my mind was going when Mike was talking um, and at the end of what you said. So there is this show that um, I've been watching with my kids on Netflix because it's mainly because it looked fun and scientific. It's called, it's called life on our planet, I think. And it's, it's, it details planet earth and all of its chapters and the, 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 the running theme through it is how each uh, kind of these massive milestones of extinction and who rules or what rules planet earth. And so, you know, it goes through each one. At one point it was the plants and at one point it was the reptiles. And at one point it was the dinosaurs. And by the way, I had no idea that there were so many chapters of this before the dinosaurs. Um, again, science, not my strong suit. And as I'm watching this and we're nearing the end, there are a few episodes left. And I keep thinking to myself, well, clearly humans are the, are, are the ruling the, the rulers now of planet earth. And we don't have the things that a lot of these animals had to, you know, like we don't have this exoskeleton. We don't, as Mike might mention, and that's what made me thinking of it too, is we don't, we, you know, the thing that we have are our brains really. And, 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 um, and, and so I wasn't even thinking about empathy and how we work together, but it's this conversation about AI. Cause I keep thinking to myself in watching this own show, does that mean that our extinction is inevitable? Is it going to be because of a meteor that that hits and then you know it it takes over the whole planet and then there's a, there are tsunamis and ash and you know whatever like it did for the dinosaurs? What is it for going to be for us? And you know for anyone who has any kind of any 
piece of anxiety. It is not something I'd recommend, but it is, it is a fascinating thing. And it did cross my mind at one point, well, would it be technology? But there's no way because we're the ones who are creating technology. But the argument with AI, I remember when you had that open letter signed by innovators and, and leaders in AI, one of the things that, that they said and that Jeffrey Hinton, who's kind of this considered the godfather of AI and was a mastermind behind it that went to Google and, and now has left Google because of his feelings about, of, about where it's going. He said, one of the things that really struck me as someone who is more steeped in national security, he said he painted a scenario of war in the future, not so distant future, by the way, of how it would be if, the, if big governments and one day it might not be big governments, could be anybody, has control, has AI tools that could create these robots, robot soldiers, robot planes, robot, already you have drones. And that's what was, that's one of the things that he had a big problem with at Google was that his technology was being given to the defense department to use for drones. Whereas that's not what he was doing when he created AI. And, um, but when he painted that picture and he said, like, imagine there's a war, first of all, wouldn't wars be much easier to declare if it's not humans being risked, uh, to go at it. And he said, and imagine you have these robot soldiers and they go, they go into a country somewhere, but how are they really supposed to distinguish who's innocent and who's not? And you're the innocent person. You're telling a robot, no, 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 I'm unarmed. No, 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 I'm innocent. Well, that robot may not have the ability to, to distinguish and might just kill you right then and there. And when he painted this dystopian future, I was like, I, you know, and this was coming from Jeffrey Hinton himself. This was an interview I heard with him. And I remember thinking to myself, I mean, this is not coming from some alarmist who's opining. No, no, this is no, no, coming no. from not, the godfather yeah. of AI. Um, this is not hyperbole. Anything right. we, I've said so far, this is this is not hyperbole. This yeah. is the state of the art. Yes. This is the state of technology and the and the and the pace of it. Yes. Yeah. So he did scare me and freak me out for that. And I, I, you know, I looked very closely when when Biden signed the executive order a few weeks ago, which I thought was great, given how given the pace of government. I was happy to see the executive order. And if you want, I can run through the sections. I pulled it up. Um, but I'll give you, I'll give you a two sentence summary. The bottom I hated line, this executive order, you know, go ahead. and that's why I wanted to raise it. There are was, a lot of reasons. But well, go ahead. it's to me. Okay. Quickly. The EO does, it has eight sections. It creates new safety and security standards for AI. It protects consumer privacy, advances equity and civil rights, protects consumers overall, supports workers, promotes innovation and competition, works with international partners, and develops guidance for federal agencies' use and procurement of that, right? So only the government use of AI. I remember a couple of the things I saw, for example, that to protect were things like making social media platforms uh, identify when something is AI generated. And, and that is great. Um, the thing that concerned me with it, or not concerned me, it just, I liked it. It was nice. But my concern was it didn't feel very enforceable. And it felt more like Congress needed to pass laws related to it that were much more, um, much, much more strict. But even with that, does that work given how fast, how fast this technology uh, develops? Can we even see, are we even able to see the, the downsides or the dangers until they hit us in the face? Usually history has proven that that's not how, how, how development and technology works. Um, so this is my concern, but I really, I, I, I don't want to be a downer. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be doom and gloom. Um, but, uh, but I am concerned and I am concerned we're not keeping up that the government's going to be unable to keep up with, with its pace of development. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you don't, now like the EO that we're up to, I don't like the, EO either. that's a much longer story, but 
Um, I actually think it's going to, well, we'll talk about it later. Um, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, what are you watching wherever it falls on the radar? Mike? I am watching for November 30th. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> the debate between Ron DeSantis of Florida and Gavin Newsom of California, red state versus blue state SmackDown. Um, I think it's an hour and a half scheduled for an hour and a half somewhere in, in Georgia, not before a live audience. Uh, these two guys are going to square off a lot of, I think, Two two aspiring politicos of their generation, not to uh, be confused with the Trump Biden generation, um, that will be talking about the differences of their states, their different governing styles, and obviously a lot of prognostication about both of their political fortunes and where they end up going uh, after this election cycle. I think a lot of people were wondering why Ron DeSantis would take this on a month and a half ago. Um, I think it was probably purely out of desperation. There's now a lot of articles running in California saying maybe this was a bad decision for Gavin Newsom, whose approval ratings are down and kind of had a mixed reviews on his visit to, to China and, and Israel last couple of weeks. Um, it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be interesting. Again, these are, these are at least two of the stars of, of their, uh, their age cohort, their generation. And I think it will be uh, – I thought it was goofy at first. I thought it was kind of a, a, a silly thing. But now I'm actually finding a, a lot of interest in it, and I think it's going to be really informative. Is this the first 2028 presidential debate? Well, that's the question, right? I think that's the right question. I, I think it, it, it could be. I don't know what DeSantis's fortunes will look like. I don't know what Gavin Newsom is the fortune. 2028 is a long way away. I don't know. Maybe machines will be running the, the world by then. But what I do know is that uh, it, it's, it's, it's being speculated that way, and I think it does offer some real practical visions of the way we are governing and what, what priorities are put where and what the kind of ideal blue state versus the ideal red state looks like. And, and these two gentlemen don't like each other, by the way. There's, it's personal. It's not just political differences. These guys clearly don't like each it's other. It's going to be good. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hagar, what'd you bring? The story I'm following is the story about the elections in Argentina, where a candidate named Javier Millet has just won the elections. And it's I'm very fascinated to see what's going to happen after. To give you a little bit of background, um, Argentina suffers from, has had a very slow uh, economy, kind of, I mean, really plummeting economy uh, over the last decade. Their peso has been tumbling. They have now more than 40% of the population lives in poverty and skyrocketing inflation up almost nearing 150%. So a really dire economic situation there. And they just had these elections and the candidate named uh, Javier Millet has himself no real governing experience. He is a former musician and TV pundit and outlandish TV pundit. I should add his nickname is El Loco. Um, he looks a little, I mean, his, he's got kind of like a whole brand. He's got kind of a Wolverine haircut and these sideburns that are, you it's know, sideburns for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be someone fun for me to impersonate. Um, he, uh, he has, you know, he does these kind of massive, you know, he pontificates on things ranging from inflation to tantric sex. I mean, this guy is all over the map. He is himself though, a libertarian economist who was elected to Congress in Argentina in 2021. And um, now he's been elected because of voter fury at the corruption and mismanagement that has led to uh, Argentina's worst economic crisis in two decades. And so he's been elected for that reason. He's also, he's been endorsed by President Trump, or at least President Trump, sorry, con congratulated him when he won. 
but he's he's been kind of dismantling the whole system. So he's his his main thing is that he walks around with a chainsaw and actually turns it on, by the way. And um, and this is his brand. His whole message is that he's going to not only slash government spending, but that that he's going to dismantle the whole thing. He wants to get rid of the central bank. He wants to get rid of every ministry. There are videos of him with, you know, the org charts of the government. And he's like taking off each sticker saying, you know, no to this ministry. This ministry is not going to exist anymore and so on, which to me feels a little anarchy-like. And so, you know, we, and you and I were talking about this as to whether he's being misbranded as being far to the right, uh, which I find fascinating. I don't, I don't really know where he sits other than very untraditional, I would say, mm-hmm. unorthodox perhaps. And so I want to, I want to follow very closely what's going to happen. I, deep down, I have, uh, I'm worried that dismantling a system this way is going to help, but he, he has ideas, some of which are interesting, like dollarizing the economy, uh, to things that are very concerning, like, um, uh, stopping all trade between with with Brazil and China, uh, he wants to abolish abortion completely. That's not economic, by the way, but you know that's social anyway. So, whatever it is, Argentina is in for a major overhaul, and it remains to be seen if it will be for the better uh, or not. But I'm curious to see how things go. Yeah, I'm I'm watching this very very closely, and my hot take is I'm kind of cheering him on for the things that he especially the economic things he wants to do. But the thing, the, the, re- the reason I think he's being misbranded as a sort of another right-wing authoritarian guy is, is, a, is a, I think it's a complete misreading of, of his program. He is very pro-Ukraine, very pro-Israel, very pro-America, pro-West. And I think to read him as the same kind of guy as Orban in Hungary or Bolsonaro is um, is a big mistake. And that's the corner that I think is getting painted in simply because he kind of looks like the other crazy right-wing authoritarians and kind of acts like them in persona. But the substance underneath the hood, I don't think it's the same thing. Well, he seems socially conservative though, right? So maybe that's so I, why... I haven't looked closely at that characterization mm-hmm. of his position on abortion, so I'm not sure where that comes from. But what I do know is that he describes himself as classically liberal, believes in minimal government intervention, that people must be free to pursue life, liberty, happiness. By far, Argentina's biggest problem is triple-digit inflation. Now, do you know what the experience of 150% inflation feels like? If you if you have a job that pays, let's say, $25,000 a year, and you save every penny you make, let's even say you live at home and your family is paying for all of your expenses, so you save every penny all $25,000 of your wages at the end of the year, it's as if you only made $10,000. That's what's in your bank account. That's the desperation of someone experiencing 150% inflation. It's crazy. Yeah, it's horrifying. And he has correctly identified the only way to prevent this situation and put Argentina back on the footing that it needs in order to fix all its other problems is to remove the government's ability to manipulate the money supply. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So before we flip over to Politicology Plus, um, we're going to talk about the new and more hinged, un, uh, new and more unhinged Donald Trump. Where can everybody find you on the internet? Hagar. 
I am at my personal pages. Uh, I mostly live on Instagram uh, at Geek Out with Hagar because I love to geek out on foreign policy. And my show is Oh My World Show. Uh, also, you can find it on Instagram and TikTok at Oh My World Show. And most importantly, on YouTube is where you will see the full, it's a weekly 10-minute show on all things geopolitics in a fun, easy, and satirical way which means you will often see me in a wig uh, so uh, and a bad accent. Uh, so that's where you can find me. Oh, my world show and at Geek Out with Hagar. Can't wait to see the Malay uh, wig. That one be <laughs> I can't fun. wait to see the Malay wig. Yep. yep. I've already <laughs> ordered something on Amazon. On <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, Mike, where are you this week? I'm on threads this week at Madrid underscore Mike one. So I'm now searchable on threads by Mike Madrid. But at Madrid underscore Mike one, look for me, find me there. And, you know, followers are, are moving over from the platform formerly known as Twitter. So, um, yeah, threads. I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I'm knee deep in it. So you see me there. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.